Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, March 18th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The International Criminal Court issues an arrest warrant for Putin. Turkey's Erdogan approves Finland's NATO bid. Francis Macron overrides parliament and passes a pension reform. First Republic secures $30 billion from 11 banks. Iran agrees to stop arming Houthis in Yemen. 440,000 gallons of radioactive water leaks from a Minnesota nuclear plant. At least 22 are killed in an alleged massacre at a Myanmar monastery. Lebanon's central bank chief appears before a corruption hearing. FDA advisors back full approval of Pfizer's Paxlovid COVID treatment. And EU countries seek to weaken livestock emission limits. In our top story, the ICC issues an arrest warrant for Putin. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Reuters, Newsweek, and The Guardian. The International Criminal Court, or ICC, issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin on Friday for the alleged war crime of unlawfully deporting children from Ukraine. The ICC's move obligates its 123 member states to arrest Putin and transfer him to The Hague for trial if he sets foot on their territory. Neither Russian nor Ukraine are ICC members, although Kyiv has granted it jurisdiction to prosecute crimes committed on its territory. The ICC also issued an arrest warrant for Russia's Commissioner for Children's Rights, Maria Lavova-Belova, accusing her of similar crimes. Some analysts say the ICC's arrest warrant doesn't carry much legal weight, as charges cannot be pressed as long as Putin remains in non-ICC member countries, including Russia, Ukraine, and China. In addition, Moscow doesn't allow the extradition of its nationals. According to a U.S.-backed Yale University report, Russia has held at least 6,000 children in at least 43 facilities, a program that Moscow, denying the allegations, maintains as a humanitarian operation for orphans stranded in conflict zones. Meanwhile, ICC Chief Prosecutor Karim Khan opened an investigation into potential war crimes last year and has since made four trips to Ukraine. Eric, thank you. Here on the Improve the News podcast, we like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. We're going to start off this round of spins with a pro-Russian narrative provided by RT.com. The ICC is another illegitimate international entity aligned against Moscow, but it's entirely powerless. While NATO-backed nations and NGOs may issue their aggressive statements, they have no jurisdiction in Russia. This is another attempt to encourage anti-Russian sentiment around the world by spreading manufactured allegations. The Guardian gives us the anti-Russian narrative for this story. The international community continues to fight against Putin and the brutal war crimes he has committed during his illegal invasion of Ukraine. Despite criticisms that this decision won't bear any weight, it marks a decisive stance as the ICC continues to investigate the atrocities committed in Ukraine and is the first step to holding Putin accountable. And the Metaculous Prediction community provides us with a statistics-based nerd narrative from time to time. They say here that there's a 7.6% chance of a coup or regime change in Russia by 2024. You know, it's going to be really hard for anybody to arrest Putin, I would have to imagine. 
but I think I've got the perfect person who can do it. Who's that? They get that guy that that uh, hosts the To Catch a Predator show. Oh, that'd be perfect. You know, um, I, I just heard that there were some children here that needed some rescuing and needed to be relocated. <laughs> uh, no, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Putin, we've got some can't. We'd like to sit down here. We've got members of the ICC outside. Uh, Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. Turkey's Erdogan approves Finland's NATO bid. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, BBC News, Guardian, and CNBC. On Friday, Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan approved Finland's bid to join NATO ending nearly a year of impasse after he threatened to veto both Finland and Sweden's application over concerns about their alleged ties to militant groups. In the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Finland and Sweden applied to join the alliance last May, marking a reversal from their usual political neutrality. The two nations had initially submitted their application as a package deal, and in June signed a 10-point agreement with Turkey to address its security concerns. Ankara maintains allegations, however, that Sweden is concealing militants from the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or the PKK, and tensions further rose in January after far-right protesters burned a quarren outside of Turkey's embassy in Stockholm. Any new member must secure support from all 30 members of the alliance, with Finland still requiring approval from Hungary, which has indicated it will back the bid during a March 27th vote. Finland's application now goes to Turkey's parliament for a formal vote of approval. Meanwhile, Sweden remains confident it will join the alliance, with its foreign minister saying it's a matter of when, not if, Sweden joins NATO. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. A couple of spins have emerged. The first one is a narrative A coming from Nordic Monitor. While on the surface this appears to be a win for Finland, it's a decisive ploy to stoke division between the two Nordic countries. While much of Turkey's disapproval has always been directed at Sweden, Finland has made it consistently clear that NATO entry is a joint ticket. Sweden is as valuable an asset to NATO as NATO is to Sweden. And for the sake of the Atlantic alliance, it will be best for all parties if the issue is resolved. And a narrative B provided by Daily Sabah. Turkey doesn't oppose NATO enlargement, as evidenced by Erdogan's latest decision. However, it does take a stand against countries that protect those who pose a security threat to Ankara. Sweden holds a bigger PKK presence in Finland and has long been criticized for its housing of multiple terrorists. There must be a change in the country's stance towards Ankara's national security if they wish to join NATO alongside Finland. You think they got a good deal, uh, you know, a little package deal they get uh, to join for uh, the cost and half the cost, maybe? Probably some perks involved. I think all the citizens get free Swiss Army knives. They get monogrammed Swiss Army knives. Yes, they do. I applied to NATO and all I got was this silly knife. No corkscrew on this one either. Oh, It's got a toothpick. In our next story, news coming from France as Macron overrides parliament and passes a pension reform. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Newsweek, Al Jazeera, CNN, Guardian, the local France, and Associated Press. On Thursday, French President Emmanuel Macron, invoking Article 49.3, sidestepped a lower House of Parliament vote on his controversial pension reform plan, raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. 
the decision was met with widespread protests across the nation, with French police allegedly using batons, tear gas, and water cannons to clear thousands of demonstrators in Paris's Place de la Concorde Thursday night. At least 310 people were reportedly detained across France, with Interior Minister Gerald Darmanin revealing 258 arrests were made in Paris on Thursday night. Although the streets were calm Friday, government ministers are still on alert. Strikes have also gained steam in opposition to Macron's pension plan across many industries, with bin collectors continuing their strike in Paris and the workers in the energy sector voting to halt production at one of the nation's largest refineries. Meanwhile, opposition lawmakers filed a motion of no confidence in the government, hoping to repeal the unpopular retirement age hike. The reform would also deny a full pension to a retiree at 64 who hadn't worked for 43 years, in which case the retiree would have to wait until 67 to receive a full pension. Macron maintains that the plan is central to making the French economy competitive amid economic challenges across Western Europe. Thank you, Eric. We have a Narrative A spin on this story provided by Prospect. The French people are reigniting a centuries-old spirit as they fight against autocratic ruler Emmanuel Macron. While he incessantly purports to be a proponent of democracy, Macron took matters into his own hands by raising France's retirement age. Not only did Macron abuse his power by sidestepping a parliamentary vote, but he also subverted the will of the French people in a complete slap in the face to democracy. Narrative B comes from MarketWatch. While controversial, leaders must make difficult and unpopular decisions for the long-term betterment of society. And Emmanuel Macron did just that in his efforts to save France's pension problem. France's demographics make it nearly impossible to maintain the status quo, as the ratio of workers to retirees shows insolvency in the near future. Macron made a tough political decision, but it will pay off. You don't want to mess around with the with the French people because, I mean, when they do, they know how to do revolutions and they fry potatoes really well. They do. They, they cut them into little strips and they fry them up. And oh, so oh, well. and so their well. toast is to die for. The older people probably make the best French fries and, uh, and French toast. I've never had old people fries. If you're over 64, you, you make the best French fries. That's why they want to keep them, want them to stick around. <laughs> All right. <laughs> First Republic secures a $30 billion rescue from 11 banks. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, Forbes, Guardian, and CBS. First Republic Bank on Thursday received a lifeline from about 11 of America's largest banks, who pledged to deposit $30 billion in order to shore up lenders' concerns at a time of crisis for the U.S. banking industry, including the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank last week. Following the two collapses and over fears First Republic could be next in line because many of its deposits exceed the Federal Deposit Insurance Cooperation, or FDIC, threshold of $250,000, meaning they're uninsured. First Republic said it secured $70 billion in liquidity on Sunday. However, that did little to calm the nerves of investors or creditors. On Thursday, First Republic's shares plummeted 36% as depositors continued to withdraw their funds and send them elsewhere. However, as news broke of a further liquidity injection, the stock rose 10% to 34.35 by market close. Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, and J.P. Morgan Chase will each deposit roughly $5 billion, while Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley will contribute about $2.5 billion each. Truist, PNC, U.S. Bank Corp., 
State Street, and Bank of New York Mellon will each send around $1 billion. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve announced Thursday that it has lent out over $300 billion to fledgling banks in the past week in order to help them meet withdrawal demands. Around $143 billion went to Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, which have now been taken over by the FDIC. Also, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on Thursday addressed the Senate Finance Committee, saying, I can reassure the members of the committee that our banking system is sound and that Americans can feel confident that their deposits will be there when they need them. All right, our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from the conversation. A joint effort between the federal government and the U.S.'s largest banks has done well to avoid a run on banks with this lifeline for First Republic and other SWIFT measures. The U.S. banking sector, however, isn't out of the woods yet, and it'll take more government action to prevent a wider crash. And an establishment critical narrative provided by Lou Rockwell. Amid the precarious financial environment, banks should have taken proactive measures to mitigate their losses, such as selling off their long-term bonds when they had a chance. It wasn't a secret that the Fed intended to raise the yields on Treasury bonds, yet many banks, such as Silicon Valley Bank, did nothing to sure up their vulnerable balance sheets. All I know is that as I'm reading off that list of banks, I'm like, not my bank. Not my bank, not my bank, not my bank. <laughs> my money's safe, my money's safe. My money's safe, exactly. <laughs> in our next story, Iran agrees to stop arming Houthis in Yemen. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, The New Arab, Voice of America, and Arab News. As part of a China-brokered deal to reestablish diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia, Iran has agreed to halt covert weapons shipments to its Houthi allies in Yemen, according to U.S. and Saudi officials. The development is being hailed as a positive step towards ending one of the region's longest-running civil wars. In 2014, Iranian-linked Houthi rebels seized the capital of Yemen, Sana'a. Then, in 2015, neighboring Saudi Arabia led a military intervention to support Yemeni government forces. The war has claimed hundreds of thousands of lives and displaced millions. A truce introduced in April 2022 expired in October without the Yemeni government and Houthis coming to an agreement. Saudi Arabia has invested hundreds of billions of dollars into the military campaign in Yemen, but is now looking to de-escalate the conflict amid efforts to rebrand and attract investors under the Vision 2030 plan. Tehran has publicly denied claims that it supplied the Houthis with weapons, but UN inspectors have traced seized shipments back to Iran. Officials from both countries say Iran will press the Houthis to end attacks on Saudi Arabia, as well as to work to limit the group's ability to launch attacks and gain ground with the arms embargo. Diplomats reportedly hope to come to a new deal on extending the ceasefire before the start of Ramadan. But the U.S. government says that deadline could be difficult to meet. Efforts to resurrect the official truce and jumpstart political talks aimed at ending the war have foundered for months. There's a pro-establishment narrative attached to this story provided by Al Jazeera. The Houthis have continued to threaten peace and security in Yemen since they launched their coup in 2014. However, through mediation, an agreement can be made if the Houthis and their Iranian backers are willing to compromise. Saudi Arabia has always been willing to help bring peace to the impoverished Arab nation, but Iranian meddling has not helped the situation. Ultimately, the conflict can only end in a political settlement, but it remains to be seen what role the Yemeni government will play in peace talks. An establishment critical narrative is coming from the American Prospect. 
It's the Yemeni government and its powerful Gulf allies who have obstructed peace in Yemen and who continue to punish its citizens for standing up for themselves. A political process like this between Saudi Arabia and Iran is likely the best way to end the war at this stage in the conflict. This is a window of opportunity for Washington to end support for the brutal Saudi war of aggression on Yemen and instead offer more robust humanitarian aid. Well, you know, that's not going to happen because there's no money in humanitarian aid. You know, you are absolutely right. This cynical narrative brought to you by Eric and Adam. (laughs) 440,000 gallons of radioactive water leaks from a Minnesota nuclear plant. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Fox News, BBC News, and Associated Press. Zycel Energy is cleaning up a leak of over 400,000 gallons of water contaminated with radioactive tritium from the Monticello Nuclear Generating Plant in Minnesota after a leak occurred. According to a statement from the utility company, the leaked water, quote, is fully contained on site and has not been detected in any local drinking water supplies. Zycel has said that its findings came after monitoring more than two dozen on-site monitoring wells. The leak was first discovered in November 2022, but state officials did not notify the public until Thursday. State officials have said that they waited to notify the public until they had more information and confirmed that the leak is contained to Zycel property and does not pose an immediate health risk. Zycel said that it notified the Federal Nuclear Regulatory Commission and state authorities on November 22nd, which was the day after the leak was verified. Since the leak, Zycel has been pumping groundwater and storing and processing the contaminated water. The water contains tritium, a common byproduct of nuclear plant operations. Around a quarter of the leaked tritium has been recovered, and Zycel has said it may build above-ground storage tanks to store the contaminated water. Thank you for the facts, Adam. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Associated Press. While the leak does not pose a risk to the public or the environment, Authorities are still taking this situation seriously and working very hard to address the situation. This incident, including its health and environmental consequences, is being carefully monitored and all potential risks are being evaluated. And an establishment critical narrative provided by Global News. Although this leak is not dangerous and tritium spills happen from time to time, any nuclear leak is still worrying. The nuclear plant is not far from a major city, and it could have been a lot worse. Anytime a nuclear leak occurs, there is cause for concern, and it took authorities a while to make this information public. I have yet to find a solution to a problem whenever I spill my tritium. It seems to eat right through the furniture and the floors, and uh, I just don't know what to do about those spills. Well, Eric, it sounds to me like you need new tritium wipes brought to us by the folks at Hefty Towels. Just look for the uranium symbol on the label before you pick yours up at your local grocery store. (laughs) According to a special report, at least 22 are killed in an alleged massacre at a Myanmar monastery. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, PBS NewsHour, and Al Jazeera. According to a doctor's post-mortem report, at least 22 people, including three monks, were killed at a Buddhist monastery in Myanmar's southern Shan state on Saturday as local insurgent groups and Myanmar's junta accused each other of carrying out a massacre of civilians. The postmortem report by Dr. Yi Zaw, who is part of the National Unity Government, an exiled civil administration formed since the 2021 coup, 
said automatic weapons were likely used at close range, and the victims were civilians since there were no military uniforms, equipment, and ammunition found on the rest of the bodies. Photos and videos provided by the armed insurgent group Kareni Nationalities Defense Force, or KNDF, appeared to show at least 21 bodies with multiple gunshot wounds around the Nan Nin Monastery, with its walls dotted with bullet holes. While the KNDF claims the junta is behind the alleged massacre, a spokesperson for the military-backed junta said its troops had been involved in clashes with rebel fighters in Shan, but blamed terrorist groups for the violence. Fighting has been ongoing in the area for the last two weeks, with reports of around 100 structures being destroyed. The massacre comes after accusations earlier this month that some 90 troops rampaged through several villages in central Myanmar on February 23rd, killing at least 17 people. Myanmar has been mired in political violence since military leader Min Aung Hlaing seized power by unseating the administration led by Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi in a 2021 coup. More than 3,000 are estimated to have been killed and over 17,000 arrested during military crackdowns in the past two years. Thank you, Eric. We have a couple narrative spins attached to this story, a narrative A provided by United Nations News. The international community must remain firm against Myanmar's illegal and illegitimate military rule, imposing further coordinated sanctions on the junta and supporting pro-democracy shadow national unity government. As long as the nationwide human rights, humanitarian, and economic crisis from the coup remain and the junta contends to legitimize its indiscriminate violence against civilians, a peaceful and democratic transition is impossible. Narrative B comes from Bangkok Post. Due to its commitment to restoring perpetual peace and stability in Myanmar, the junta has no option other than to use lethal force to fight armed insurgents and terrorists trying to seize power. Exactly what happened on Saturday morning remains unclear, as there are no eyewitnesses, which is why accusing Myanmar's military of committing crimes against humanity is unacceptable. Lebanon's central bank chief appears before corruption hearing. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, Reuters, Al Jazeera, Arab News, and Naharnet. European investigators on Thursday questioned Riyad Salame, the governor of Lebanon's central bank, or the BDL, probing his personal wealth and allegedly suspicious financial transfers abroad. Salome has held his post for three decades, making him one of the world's longest-serving central bank governors. The 72-year-old who claims he is innocent is being investigated alongside his brother Raha in Lebanon and at least five European countries regarding accusations that he stole hundreds of millions of dollars and laundered some of the proceeds abroad. Salome was originally supposed to be questioned on Wednesday but refused to attend, arguing that the presence of the European investigators was in conflict with Lebanon's national sovereignty. During the session, the European delegation was led by French judge Aude Barisi. Barisi represented France and Luxembourg and did not directly question Salome. As a local judge, Charbel Beau Samra questioned him instead. No Lebanese or foreign lawyer accompanied Salome to the hearing. This was the European delegation's second visit to Beirut following a trip in January when they questioned nine people, including current and former central bank officials, as well as the head of several banks in the country. The session came as Lebanon's economic crisis continues to deepen, 
as the country's currency hit a new low in the parallel market earlier this week, reaching 100,000 Lebanese pounds, or LPB, to the dollar. Lebanon is also currently without a government or president, which is reserved for a Maronite Christian due to political infighting. Thank you for the facts of that story, Adam. The first spin is Narrative A, coming from Al Arabia. Though Salome is surely guilty of many things, it is obvious that he's being used as a scapegoat by Lebanon's entrenched political elite. Up until Lebanon's financial collapse in 2019, both Lebanese and European leaders considered Salome a financial magician, lauding him for his economic policies. Now that the Lebanese system has failed, all the blame has been put on Salome, when, in reality, it is Lebanon's entire political class that is at fault. And a narrative B provided by The Cradle. Rian Salome is an American agent who works only for the U.S. Embassy in Lebanon. So many facets of Lebanon's current crisis are based on Western meddling, such as sanctions. It is well known that Salome is protected by the Americans, as they blame Hezbollah and the resistance for Lebanon's decline, when, in reality, it is the West that has inflicted this suffering on the Lebanese people. Narrative C is being provided by the National News. Ultimately, Salome, though corrupt, is a highly skilled political actor. Though he has often portrayed himself to the West as a victim of Hezbollah and Iran's meddling in the country, in reality, he has played both sides for his political gain. Though the Americans have indicated their dissatisfaction with him, most recently by putting sanctions on Hassan Mukhalid over alleged financial ties to Hezbollah, ultimately he is still in the game. You know, Salome was quoted as saying, Well, we, what we doing? We didn't think what we were doing was wrong, you see? We, we were told we were just following orders. Yeah, you see? Yeah, that's the guy over there. Man, that you are spot on with that impersonation. Yeah, Sally me, Sally you, whatever. FDA advisors back full approval of Paxlovid. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Associated Press, CNBC, and New York Times. Independent advisors to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, on Thursday voted 16 to 1 in support of full approval of Paxlovid, Pfizer's oral treatment for COVID for high-risk adults. The FDA is expected to decide by May whether to grant full approval to the medication, which has been used by millions of Americans since it received emergency use authorization from the FDA in 2021. Paxlovid is for people over 50 years old or those with medical conditions that could land them in the hospital or put them at risk of dying from COVID who become infected. Patients have been concerned about a, quote, rebound effect relating to taking Paxlovid. But FDA data has also shown that people who didn't take the drug sometimes also suffered from a rebound. At this time, remdesivir is the lone antiviral drug with full FDA approval as a COVID treatment. Molnupiravir, another pill, has emergency authorization, but regulators in Europe have recommended against its approval due to safety concerns. The FDA advisors also were concerned about adverse reactions that could result from interactions between Paxlovid and other drugs. But those risks could be addressed by taking certain actions, including adjusting the dose of some drugs and monitoring patients closer. Thank you, Eric. We've got a couple narrative spins on this. Narrative A provided by CNN. Paxlovid should be on a clear path to full approval from the FDA, and that status can't come soon enough. This important tool in the fight against COVID would have prevented thousands of deaths last winter, and it will be useful in the winters ahead. Concerns about COVID rebound and problems with drug interactions have been addressed, 
so the FDA shouldn't postpone Plaxovid's wider availability much longer. The Atlantic is giving us a narrative B for this story. Not so fast. The data on who would benefit most from Paxlovid is still lacking, and there are still numerous questions that need to be answered. Doctors are already tentative about prescribing it because of the fear of side effects, in addition to uncertainty over whether it's safe for people who are pregnant or in vulnerable populations. The FDA will have to solve many of these mysteries before full approval. I wonder if you have to wear a mask when you take this pill. It's a mask with a little hole in it so you can take the pill through the mask. Ah! A special Plaxovid mask. It's kind of like a Middle Eastern copulation device. Your lips don't actually touch the pill. (laughs) (laughs) And in our final story today, European Union countries seek to weaken livestock emission limits. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Asia One, and Azerbaijan News. Member states of the European Union agreed on Thursday to attempt to curb the number of farms covered by proposed rules to slash pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from livestock, despite criticism from some countries. The EU has failed to significantly reduce the methane emissions produced by livestock for more than a decade. EU member states and the European Parliament plan to negotiate more stringent limits on farms and factories for waste disposal and other polluting gases like sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides. Last year, the European Commission proposed that all cattle, pig, and poultry farms with over 150 livestock units should face new limits on their emissions, around 184,000 of Europe's largest farms. Cattle would be included in this first-time regulation. It would increase the number of poultry and pig farms covered by the directive from the present 20,000. On Thursday, Bulgaria, Germany, Italy, and Poland pressed for fewer farms in the Commission proposal, stating it was unrealistic and burdensome for farmers. At the same time, environment ministers said cattle and pig farms should only be covered if they have at least 350 livestock units and 280 livestock units for poultry farms, more than doubling the Commission's threshold. Denmark, Finland, Ireland, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands aligned themselves with the position but were disappointed at the weakening. Finland's State Secretary to the Minister for the Environment, Terry Leitinen, said that EU countries have significantly reduced their enthusiasm for the environment and their potential pollutant emissions. If the Commission's proposal is adopted, it will ensure that farms responsible for 60% of EU ammonia emissions and 43% of methane emissions are covered by new limits. Thank you for the facts of that story, Adam. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Greenpeace. The EU's Industrial Emissions Directive aims at reducing pollution from cattle, pigs, and poultry factory farms and is essential to tackling the climate and biodiversity crisis. Requiring these giants of industrial livestock farming to obtain a pollution permit would be a step toward more sustainable food systems. And we're going to wrap things up with an establishment-critical narrative provided by Fox News. Curbing nitrogen emissions on farms by limiting the use of nitrogen fertilizers and slashing livestock numbers will put 5,000 jobs at risk in agriculture and 15,000 indirect jobs. This nitrogen plan, which follows EU legislation, will create a socioeconomic bloodbath. The proposed cuts will put many farmers out of business. This is why farmers need to protest this proposed legislation before it's too late. All I know is that this whole situation over livestock emission, 
It really stinks. It tends to get cloudy. I think it's all BS, to tell you the truth. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, March 18th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.